godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And then we're going to move on to verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached this area. Thank you for reading the Bible to us this evening. We're going to pray together now. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your spirit you'd help us to understand these words uh, and put them into practice wisely. We pray every day of our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the first Sunday of the month, all the way through 2018, we're preaching on one of our wildly important goals. And for the first, uh, well, for the last three months, last one tonight, we've been thinking about evangelism. Uh, Next first Sunday, beginning of July, we'll be thinking about our belonging wildly important goal. So uh, we're thinking about Philip here and how he was telling the gospel to other people. Uh, And the title we'll come up with is this, not preaching it like Philip, but this, it's true evangelism, uh, always a partnership. True evangelism is always a partnership. That is a partnership between us and God. True evangelism is always a partnership. And when you read the New Testament, and when you read the book of Acts, it is very clear that the great evangelist is God. 
It is God who is the one who has got the heart for this. It's God who is the one with the greatest passion. It's God is the one who takes the initiatives in, in uh, both in Samaria and out down there in the desert with this Ethiopian guy. Uh, it is God who's busy and committed. It is God who's the one who wants it to happen. And he involves people like Philip in the way in doing that. And uh, you know something? He normally, although God takes the initiative in all these things, uh, although God is the prime mover in this, he normally wants to use people, even people like you and me. Or as John Stott once wrote about it, he said this, the Father could easily draw people to Christ through the Spirit without any human cooperation whatsoever. But he has chosen normally not to do so. He's chosen normally to use people like you and me, to act in partnership with us. And so, therefore, true evangelism is always a partnership. Maybe not quite always, because God can easily draw people to himself. But thinking of our role, it's always a partnership. Now, the trouble is, you see, if you're thinking and you're looking at this passage here and you're being a bit silly about it, you think, well, how are we going to work this one through? How are we going to apply this to our lives? So you can think of Philip and the Ethiopian and you can uh, think of that. Well, maybe that's a blueprint for my own evangelism. I'm going to do it like Philip, which in one sense is commendable. But how far do you take doing it like Philip kind of thing? Just if you have a look at the idea here. Because certainly if you're going to do it like Philip, then what you need to do is to uh, go outside the doors at the end of the service and uh, uh, wait for the next chariot to come down Holmes Avenue. And if a bus comes, you say, no, no, I'm waiting for a chariot. And uh, and then by some miracle, one comes and then you run alongside it and you realize the character inside this chariot that's going down Holmes Avenue there. He's, uh, he's not reading the right book of the Bible. He's reading Ecclesiastes and not on his eyes. So you think, well, this obviously can't be for me. Uh, and so on. And clearly that's just completely daft, isn't it? The only, the only blueprint we see here, the only big idea we see here in this passage, or these two little passages here, or the little one and the slightly bigger one, is that true evangelism is always a partnership. So let's see what it looks like. The first one is this. The first thing I want to say uh, is this, uh, that in this partnership that God prepares. Now, if you have a look uh, at uh, verse the end, well, the, the first two little paragraphs there. Uh, so verse one or second half of verse one through to verse eight. It's really exciting. See, because if you remember back to Acts chapter one and verse eight, Jesus says to his apostles, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to whole, into the whole world. It's like a, like ripples going out from a stone in a pond. And the church here is being persecuted. They're trying to just stamp it out. They're trying to stamp down the church and splat it kind of thing. A bit like you would, or I might anyway, uh, with a spider running across the living room carpet or something. And uh, uh, and so what they're trying to do, what Saul was doing, just look, just, just in a little sentence before our passage tonight, and Saul approved of their killing him, their killing their Stephen. Saul was there, became the Apostle Paul, got converted and became the Apostle Paul. He's trying to splat out the church. But the trouble is, as they're trying to do that, you know, sometimes if you, if you put Put your foot down, something goes all over the place. Well, actually, what's happening with the Christian churches? They're trying to splat it out, and actually, it makes it far worse for them because, in trying to destroy it, actually, they're sent out in evangelism to take the gospel to all sorts of places. 
So you can see here, right here, you can see the whole idea about uh, uh, of Acts chapter 1 being fulfilled. So you see here, for instance, look at verse 1. Uh, All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, mourned deeply for him. Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. And then verse 4, those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So they're trying to destroy the church, but actually they were sending it out. They were sending out people to fulfill what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. God is preparing the ground for the gospel to be going out, even though they're trying to destroy the church. And then Philip is in the middle of this. He's in the middle of this, uh, first of all, he's there preaching the gospel uh, in Samaria. And there's some kind of um, uh, revival going on there. Uh, it, it, it says some extraordinary things going on. When the crowds heard Philip, uh, verse 6, and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Um, for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city, in verse 8 there. So there are marvelous, incredible things going on. And then God says to, uh, sends an angel to Philip and says, uh, Philip, I know it's all going well. I know there's amazing things going on, but it's time to go. I'm going to take you out of here. I want you to go to the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there are great things happening here. Leave that to me. But I've got a job for you. And I want you to go down to that desert road. Um, and that's all he said. There was no explanation. It sounded ridiculous, didn't it? I want you, you know, there are great things happening here, but I want you to go out to the middle of nowhere. But Philip went and he met, and he met this bloke. Look at the beginning of verse 27 there. Uh, on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, and this is a story possibly of the first black guy Possibly the first African to get converted. So you see, it's not just Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but here it's going out to the whole world. And it's almost, this guy almost certainly had no contact with any Christians at all. It's brilliant. God is orchestrating this. And true evangelism is always a partnership and God is orchestrating it. God is preparing the ground. God is sending uh, Philip to go and uh, tell these people about the gospel. And what happens? Well, it was a bit like this. Say you're a brave person and you're cycling through the middle of London. It's a Thursday evening. You're at the traffic lights and a black jag pulls up next door. Looks a pretty official car with uh, uh, fairly darkened glass down the sides and so on. And you know that there's a rather important guy in the back seat and, uh, and you recognize him. It's this guy, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor. And the lights change and uh, the jag goes off. But uh, then he stops again at the next row of traffic lights and you catch him up. And and you notice that he's reading the Bible and the red lights take rather a long time. And so uh, you knock on the window. And Philip Haben looks up and uh, uh, and then extraordinarily he winds down the bulletproof glass in his official Jaguar. Uh, And uh, you say, uh, oh, I noticed you're reading the Bible. Sorry, I couldn't uh, couldn't help but notice. Um, What are you reading? And he says, well... um, it's something called Isaiah. And you say to him, well, uh, do you understand it? And he replies, no, not really. And you say, well, would you mind if I tried to explain it? And he said, yeah, I'd love you to. I'm actually going down to my constituency. He's the MP for Weybridge. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you'd like to ride along as well, perhaps you could explain it on the way. Perhaps it would take an hour. 
And so you turn your bike up and you jump in the back. The security guy in the car behind is going absolutely bananas of what's going on here. But uh, you jump off, you get in the back there, and, uh, and you're probably thinking, yeah, right, that never happens. But it did once, didn't it? It did once. Uh, and God prepared it all. It did once, not in the middle of London, but out in the middle of nowhere, as uh, God, the evangelist, prepared the way. And this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, that means a castrated man, probably castrated for religious reasons. And uh, in verse 27, you see, well, he'd been there to worship in Jerusalem. And why would you do that unless God was somehow at work in your life? And on the way home, um, oh, by the way, when it says chariot, it's most likely not Charlton Heston type chariots, but it, it's most likely a kind of an ox cart. So it was pretty easy for Philip just to kind of jog alongside. And, uh, and the spirit told Philip to do that. Look at verse 29. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And the Ethiopians reading Isaiah, and not just Isaiah, but Isaiah chapter 53, which is about the cross, which is about the center of everything, and how Jesus died for us. Surely God's at work here. And uh, and Philip says, do you understand it? And the end of Ethiopian guy says, no, I need someone to explain it, in verse 31. And then Philip hitches that lift, and the man becomes a Christian. It's wonderful. And God's preparing the way. See, God's got him to Jerusalem to worship. God's got him reading a copy of Isaiah. God's got him reading Isaiah chapter 53. God sent Philip out to the desert. God got Philip to run up to that chariot. God is preparing the way here. And do you notice here the way Philip was just obedient to those nudges? So first of all, when the angel showed up in verse 26, and then when the spirit nudged him in verse 29 there, I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of get a feeling, at least because I'm not awfully charismatic, so I might just think it was just a feeling. If I was more charismatic, I'd say, God, the Lord said to me, it's the same thing. And uh, uh, But sometimes I get those feelings. Sometimes the Lord says to me, and I don't recognize it, and I think, well, I don't be silly moon, and I should have gone. Sometimes I do get a feeling and I phone someone up or send them an email or send them a text or go around and see them or whatever it is. And it's one of those God moments and God's been leading me. Well, Philip had a very silly idea. In fact, Philip had two very silly ideas. First was a complete stranger. This angel character turned up. Um, and um, the thing is, he acted on them. And you just see what happened. And you see, I think God just does nudge us sometimes. To go and do something, to go and speak to someone, to phone someone up, whatever it would be. And if you get that kind of strong feeling that you ought to be doing something, please don't just dismiss it. I think there are plenty of good things that have happened in this world. Because God's people, someone, an individual, one of God's people, has just acted on a feeling, on a nudge, on a divine intervention, on an angel popping by. So true evangelism is always a partnership. God prepares. And then, and this next point is really, um, it's a, just an application of that really. Uh, it's always a partnership and we pray. There is no, there is no um, example here of, of, uh, of Philip actually praying. At least not, not that I've been able to find. Um, and you know, do you find sometimes when, you know, if you're, maybe you have children or grandchildren or nephews and nieces or uh, younger siblings or whatever, uh, and, you know, sometimes when they're around, it's good to do things together. For instance, uh, make a cake or something a bit like this. 
And, uh, uh, and, and what happens is that you're there, you're, you're, and they're making a tiny contribution, but they think that actually what they've done is the most fundamentally important thing that they could possibly have done, and that you couldn't possibly have done it without them. Well, it seems to me that's actually very much like evangelism, isn't it? It's a partnership. And the problem is we think, don't we, that if we invite someone to an event that God couldn't possibly have done, could have done it without us. Or uh, when we when we explain the gospel to someone or we give our testimony, we think, well, God is, is, is greatly at work, but he couldn't possibly have done it without us. And that we've made a huge contribution to their salvation. Actually, we have made a contribution, but it's like that little guy there in the blue shirt. It's just tiny. It's just tiny, but significant because God wants to do it with us. It's a partnership. Evangelism is a partnership. And therefore, because God is at work and we're partners with him, it seems to me a very important, significant thing that we just need to do, an application of this point, is we pray. That we're organized about it. That we have people who we want to pray for. I mean, Anna and I have got, you know, people we've known for, for a long, long time. And uh, just fairly recently, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the sermon, but one of my godsons, we've been praying for Tom for 30 years. Maybe a bit more now, I think. And uh, we bumped into him just recently at his dad's funeral. And uh, um, and I was, uh, we were talking with Tom and he said, oh yeah, we've just done the Alpha course. And Sonia, his wife, has just done the Alpha course. Oh yeah, we're going to our local church. That's extraordinary, wonderful. We've been praying all this time. And now suddenly there's a kind of great shift forward spiritually. They're coming to stay uh, the weekend in, uh, in a few weeks' time. You may well meet them. Give them a good welcome, won't you? But it's encouraging, isn't it? You know, it's an obvious thing. We pray. God prepares. The result, the the, uh, the consequence of that must be because God is at work. We want to move up and be alongside him. And one fundamental thing that we need to do is we pray. Sometimes it may take years and years and years. But let's pray, pray, pray. Keep on praying. Be organized about it. Say, you know, uh, ask other people who they're praying for. Encourage and help one another to pray. Then the next thing, which is uh, getting back to uh, directly to the passage, is this third thing, is this, we go. We've seen God's nudges, the angel, and uh, then the spirit speaking to Philip in some way in verse 29. And then verse 39, is it verse 39? Have a look at verse 39. Uh, when they came up out of the water, that's after the Ethiopian had been baptized, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. How did that happen? Do you think it was like Star Trek? Kind of, you know, was he beamed up? Um, or maybe there was another angel, another word of the Spirit. We don't know. We're not told. It doesn't matter that much. Philip went. That was the thing. Tuned into God and he went. And he went with a purpose. So uh, let's look at verse, back in verses 4 and 5. Philip is going to all sorts of places here. We see three places, don't we? So we see him in verse 4 in Samaria. We see him out in the middle of nowhere, verses 26 to uh, 38. And then, um, uh, and he was taken away in verse 40. He's then in Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, which is probably where he lived. Now, I don't know about you, but look at, but let's go back to verses 4 and 5. Those who scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been scattered by a persecution, I'd have been running for my life. And here's Philip, and what's he doing? Well, he's one of those who's preaching the word wherever they went. So verse 4 is a general description of what happened, and verse 5 is a specific example. So uh, here we are. Here's one of them. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Remember? Jerusalem, 
Judea, Samaria, end of the world. Look at those ripples. Uh, And they proclaimed the Messiah there. Absolutely brilliant. Now, uh, he preached. And there were those signs and wonders. And there were two things to uh, to work on here. First thing is just to tune in, just to make sure that, you know, if God is going to nudge you, you're going to be hearing. So make sure that we're in tune, that we tune in every day. Beginning of each day, we spend some time with the Lord. Uh, even if it's just simply to read a little bit of the Bible very briefly and to pray. But do that tomorrow morning, would you? Hopefully, gradually, as time goes on, that will get a bit longer and we'll use some notes that we can get from church here to help us to read our Bibles and to understand them. But tune in every day. And then the other thing is to go. Uh, for Philip, there were no questions. No ifs, no buts, no maybes, at least not that we read about here. He went. He may have thought it was ridiculous, but he went, didn't he? He went to uh, uh, to a Gentile God-fearer who has been castrated and because he'd been castrated, he wouldn't have been able to get into the temple in, Jeru- in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1. So he could have been going home from Jerusalem. He'd gone up there probably to, well, it says he'd be gone up there to worship. He was possibly on his way home thinking, well, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? And the Jews had also been taught to be revolted. By those who've been sexually mutilated. And so Philip could easily have been thinking, this is a Gentile black African who's been sexually mutilated and who revolts me. I don't want to tell him the gospel. Someone else can do that. So who revolts you? Who do you find it really difficult to spend that time with? Can I just say, don't let that stop you talking to them about Jesus, whoever they are. Have there been anyone coming into church in the last six months, say, who you think, oh dear, that must never stop us. Never stop us talking to folks. Never stop us welcoming them. So true evangelism, always a partnership. Do you go? Philip went. Now, we don't know what was going on in his mind and so on, but the end result was he went. Do you go? Would you be a Katie Bennett? She came from New Zealand. She came to Hove. She came to this church. She's now in northern Spain, taking the gospel to northern Spain. Well, what about Susanna Baldwin? Would you be a Susanna going from England to Australia and back to England and uh, early next year? We trust we'll be going to Tanzania to translate the gospel. Would you go? Would you go? Going often starts with a little step to your neighbor, to your friend, to your family. But then sometimes it's also a huge step, like those two girls recently, and many others. You can see them on the board at the back of church. So true evangelism is always a partnership. God prepares. We pray. We go. Number four is, um, well, we talk. We talk. We're very good at making excuses. Oh, they wouldn't be interested. They might be offended. Wouldn't want to lose the friendship. But we've got to go. We've got to talk. Uh, American evangelist D.L. Moody said this. The great thing is to have zeal. As long as a person has zeal, he can make loads of mistakes and still be reaching people at the end. Now, we probably wouldn't use the word zeal these days. We might say the great thing is to have passion or whatever it would be. 
But we've got to get out there. It's interesting, isn't it? Philip got out there and he used different methods in different places. So in verse 5, we see Philip preaching. Lots of people and extraordinary things happening. Verse um, 12, doing the same. And then in verse 35, there's one-to-one work. But the reaction is the same. So uh, in Samaria, you look in verse 8, and it says there was great joy in that city. And then in the middle of the desert, there's this one bloke from Africa, this Ethiopian eunuch, and his reaction is he went on his way rejoicing. And for both of them, whether it was the preaching to loads of people most likely, or whether it was just one guy having a chat to another in the back of the taxi kind of thing, uh, it involved words, it involved speaking. I mean, who was the person who said to preach the gospel and use words if you have to? That's just completely wrong. That's a load of old nonsense, isn't it? We've got to use words. I mean, there's no point in doing a night shelter in the hope that people would see, oh, yeah, we'll be obviously Christians. I must become a Christian. When did that ever happen? Actually, we've got to tell people. We've got to use words to explain that we're Christian people. With tiddlywinks and cameo and so on. It's great to, uh, um, have great value to the community. It's great to do them. But we also want to use words to tell them about Jesus. What about our new uh, community center? That's the inside of it. It's on the website at the moment. It's going to be much better than that when it's done. And, uh, um, and you know, how are we going to use it? Yeah, it's going to be used for the community. But... We want to tell people about Jesus there. We want to speak. We want to use words. We want to explain the gospel to people there. We want to uh, explain to people what it means in groups or one-to-ones or big groups or little groups or whatever it is. And you know the other thing? As long as we have puff in our lungs, the work's not done until Jesus returns. The Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And what did Philip do? Look at verse 40, right at the end of the passage. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, who had beamed down, or maybe he just made his own way there, who knows, and then traveled about. And what what was he doing? Well, he's doing the same thing, preaching the gospel, going back to what he was doing in Samaria, and all the towns until he reached Caesarea, probably until he reached home. You see, evangelism is a partnership, and it's a partnership that we're going to be involved with until the day we die or Jesus returns, whichever happens first. God prepares, and so therefore we've got to pray. We will go, and we'll talk. And then finally, and just briefly, it's this. God converts. God converts. Always has been, always will be the case. God's in charge here. You can see that all the way through. And the Lord is changing that Ethiopian eunuch's heart. So you have a look at verse 36, and have a look at verse 38. As they travel along the road, verse 36, came some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? He understood what that meant. He understood that baptism is a picture of dying to an old way of life and starting a new way of life. He'd had the gospel explained to him from Isaiah. He knew about the cross he had responded in a repentance and a turning around and coming to faith and as a sign of that he wants to be baptized that washing that outward symbolism too of having his sins washed by jesus blood by jesus death now to change someone's heart like that in one taxi ride one chariot ride uh, is god's work we can't do that we just can't and so we praise him for it 
that he can do it, that he does do it, that he does it in hope, that he's done it in this church. He's doing it at the moment. So we can praise God for our own conversion. And that evangelism uh, is always a partnership. So praise God for that person through whom you heard the gospel, that influential person or group of people in your life. Tonight, in communion, receive communion. When you go back to your seat, why don't you just praise God for the gospel, for Jesus' death, and for those people through whom you heard the gospel and through whom God has worked great things in your life to bring you to a new life with him. God choose, chose to use people in your conversion. And remember... True evangelism, it's always a partnership. God and us, but mostly God. And God choosing to use us, even us, today, before you go home tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for those whom you have used in our conversion. And thank you, Lord, that in evangelism, it's a partnership. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to be people who are prepared to go, who do pray, who recognize your work and rely on you. Please, Lord, help us to be responsive to your leading and your prompting. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue your work here of bringing people to new life in Jesus. For his name's sake, amen.